Welcome to another edition of the Grizz Den Podcast. I am your host, Will Walker, and I welcome a very special guest onto the show today. He is Sean Coleman, host of the Locked On Grizzlies Podcast. He also contributes in multiple capacities to SB Nation's Grizzly Bear Blues. We talk about everything the Grizzlies have shown us in the past 10 games. You name it, we probably covered it. The good, the bad, the ugly. He also gave two very interesting templates for how this team could look as contenders in the maybe near future. You're going to want to hear it. Before we get into the show, I'd encourage you to check out grizden.com. We've got shirts, we've got hoodies, we've got crewnecks, and we have new designs coming down the pipe. You're going to want to see them. Grizden.com is the perfect place to go for your holiday needs. Follow us on social media, Instagram at Grizz underscore Den, Twitter at Grizden. We're always tweeting about these games, so give us a follow. We promise a fun time. So without further ado, let's welcome Sean to the show. It is my pleasure to welcome a very special guest to the podcast. Uh, he is Sean Coleman. He hosts Locked on Grizzlies, a, uh, a Grizzly-centric podcast that publishes five times a week, if I'm not mistaken. And he also is a contributor writer for SB Nation's Grizzly Bear Blues. So he is busy talking and writing about the Grizzlies um, just about every single day. So, Sean, welcome to the Grizz Den Pod. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, typically in season, out of season, I'm not, I'm not so you know keeping up with things. But a very special guest, I typically have five varies in front of special, not just one. <laughs> so, a very, 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 very special guest. I'm kidding. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely, for me, and no better time to have you on than after just an unbelievable night last night. We're recording this, by the way, on Tuesday night, November 9th. This will probably post on Wednesday. Um, but uh, last night, the Grizzlies took down the Timberwolves in FedEx Forum in overtime. Um, pretty uh, incredible comeback. They were up. They uh, slipped up a little bit. Uh, we're back down, and then fourth quarter jaw happened, along with some other things. But I just wanted to tee you up just to start the podcast to give us your thoughts on the Timberwolves game, what you noticed, what you saw, um, and what stuck out to you. Yeah, uh, it was a uh, game that I think may test, uh, you know, the structure a bit of, of the Grizzlies. Um, it's early in the season, you know, only 10 games in. Uh, first off, let's put it this way. It's good. It, it, at the end of the day, it's good. You have a chaotic, crazy night where most of the game, let's be honest, you aren't, you aren't playing your best basketball. Uh, the defense struggles. Um, you are you have gotten clear proof that your starting lineup is not trending in the right direction, especially defensively. But when the Grizzlies had to get it done, it, it, to me what stands out is, number one, Brandon Clark shining like he did 
Number two, the Grizzlies bench, which coming into this season was one of the few aspects of this team that truly stacked up as being elite compared to the rest of the NBA. Those things stood out. But, Will, the thing that stood out to me more than anything was the fact that the Grizzlies structure was kind of tested. You have proof now that this team is likely going to need to customize its front court rotations moving forward. Instead of just thinking that it's Steven Adams who at the top, and if he's not available, something along with Jared, it's not going to work. Numbers are showing that this team is going to be more flexible and adaptable to situations when Steven Adams is not on the court in high leverage and closing situations. But Jaws and All-Star, I put out some stats today. I'll be having the podcast tomorrow uh, showing just how historic Jaws' first 10 games are. You've got an All-Star. You've got an All-NBA type level talent in John Morant. It's now finding the supporting cast that's there for him. And last night, the Grizzlies got stops when they needed to. Um, Even though the three was not there, they went back to winning the game on the run and in the paint like they did at times last year. So the big thing that stands out to me, defense got stops when it needed to. Brandon Clark showed he's a rotation-level player, and the bench stood up. And to be honest with you, the Grizzlies showed they can win in multiple ways. Even if it's not through their starting lineup, they could shoot the three now to win games, or they can get back to winning the game on the run or in the paint. You've got multiple layers that you can you know, feature on any one night. If one's not working, and if one way's not working, the other way can. And that's a good thing to have as a resourceful winner looking to make the playoffs. Yeah, let's talk about those lineups because, I mean, Brandon Clark, uh, DNP for the last few games... Came just, I mean, Zaire Williams was out and a spot opened up in the rotation, especially with Dylan being injured. Uh, BC stepped up where we haven't seen him play like that since his rookie season. Um, do you believe that this newfound piece, I guess you could say now that it was resurrected, if you will, what are your thoughts on Brandon Clark and the sustainability moving forward with them? I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you really have to look at what is your goal? What is your priorities if you're the Grizzlies? Is your goal to balance development and being competitive? Or is your goal to be as competitive as possible? I think for the team, this team has earned the right for Taylor Jenkins, and he did it last year. It doesn't make any sense to stop now. Go with what's going to make you the most competitive. We've got news now that Dylan Brooks is going to be back. Um, you're going to have more opportunity to where someone's going to have to follow the rotation. And at the end of the day, if you're looking at Zaire Williams, Xavier Tillman, and Brandon Clark, it should not surprise anybody that Brandon Clark and Xavier Tillman are going to correlate better with this Grizzlies team being competitive than Zaire Williams. I mean, you're talking about players who are significantly more developed than Zaire Williams. But with that being said, it is dependent on what you're looking at. Xavier Tillman's going to line up more with what Taylor Jenkins typically prefers. He's a better shooter among him and Clark. He also passes the ball better, more consistent on defense. But Clark, on games where you're going to get out on the run, you're going to have fast pace, you're going to have athletic um, you know, lineups, he's the guy to go with. He offers the best ceiling right now out of all three of those players. And to me, he offers that energy boost. You saw it last night. It was not just the fact that he was playing like his rookie season. It was the energy, the offensive rebounds, the, 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 the hops to be able to be a finisher, to add an element to the offense we haven't seen. So I think that, yes, you do what you can. If you're going to go 10 deep, Xavier Tillman and Brandon Clark are certainly there. Even if it means you go with Kyle Anderson at the three in some lineups, you do it. But I do think, yeah, you may go with one over the other based off matchups moving forward. Both of them deserve rotation spots. Yeah, a point that I've made in the past on the podcast is um, we've had some disagreements about Brandon Clark and and what he can bring. Uh, and the three-point shooting was always something that came up. Um, you know, Xavier Tillman historically has been a bit better from there. Um, however, Brandon Clark, to me, even if you're in the camp that 
is wanting to necessarily package him in a trade in the future, you want him to be playing well to to have that value anyway. And so I think no matter what your opinion was, my point was you 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 want him to play well. You want him to to be engaged. You want him to show what he can do best. And I think last night it was on full display. And and to me, it depends on if he's hitting that floater because that opens up just about everything in your offense. Um, if he's going to be your guy in the middle. Now, let's talk about the closing lineup because Kyle at the four, Jaron at the five, you know, that is, that's something that's worked. And even when Kyle necessarily wasn't playing his game at the start of the season, you knew he's a veteran. You knew he was going to, to bring it. It's going to regress back to the mean. What did you think about that closing lineup and the way that it can project forward um, and, and just the use that Taylor Jenkins has with that? Well, if any of your listeners have been listening to the Locked on Grizzlies podcast for a while, first off, if they have, thank you to them very much. Get as much Grizzlies content as you can, obviously. But I've been saying that you know ever since the start of last season. The Grizzlies closing lineup needs to be Ja, Melton, Dylan, Kyle, and Jaron. And the reason why I said that is because you obviously have Ja, your superstar, with your best quartet of two-way impact players surrounding him. And you saw it last night. I threw out a stat Uh, on Twitter earlier today, Will, where it was just one substitution. In the 10 minutes that the starters played together last night, they had a net rating of a negative 42.9. They got absolutely dominated. They could not stop the Wolves defensively. They got dominated by the Wolves starting lineup. You sub Steven Adams out, put Jaron at the 5, Kyle at the 4. That closing lineup had a net rating of 92.3. You go from a net rating of negative 42.9 to a positive of 92.3. Now, again, you can only take that with a grain of salt because we're talking about a total of 10-minute sample size. But you go from being dominated to dominant, and that's the reason why they were able to get the game done. So all day long, yes, we talk about customizing the front court. Do you utilize Steven Adams, Xavier Tillman, Brandon Clark? Who do you utilize more based off your lineup? Well, it's a mixture of flexibility there, but structure in the closing lineup. Ja, Melton, Dillon, Kyle Anderson, and, J- and Jaron Jackson Jr. must be your consistent closing five. If for some reason you don't have Melton or um, uh, Dillon, go with Bain. If you don't have Kyle or Jaron, go with BC and just let it go until it can't work for you. Numbers certainly suggest it's probably going to work more often than it won't. Absolutely. Well, it certainly worked last night. And uh, I want to go through now some headlines that we're seeing through uh, the first 10 games of the season. And I want to start with John Morant. And I know it sounds like you've got some great content to share with your listeners tomorrow on Locked On. Is there anything that, any any uh, you know teaser that you can give us uh, on John Morant's performance thus far? And, and as you mentioned at the top, his, his all-star level play. Uh, John Morant is a decent NBA player. <laughs> All kidding aside, uh, uh, John Morant is getting off to a start this season that the Grizzlies have never seen. Uh, in terms of, well, let me take this back. John Morant's offensive contributions are getting to a level that the Grizzlies have never seen. Um, you know, I, I did a fun stat. I put it on Twitter earlier today. Um, since the Grizzlies have moved to Memphis which players have had the best scoring outputs in the first 10 games of a specific individual season. John Morant was at 260. But was eye-opening, and when I think that a lot of people don't really realize, especially a lot of younger Grizzlies fans, nothing against them, it's just a true fact, is that 15 years ago at the start of his career, Rudy Gay 
was the John Morant of the Grizzlies franchise. Rudy Gay was the best offensive talent this franchise had seen since Sharif Abdurrahim when the Grizzlies were in Vancouver. Rudy Gay owns four of the six highest opening 10-game point totals that this franchise has ever seen. Not Paul Gasol, not Mark Gasol, not Zach Randolph. It's Rudy Gay. And so, to me, that proves just how impactful, you know, John Moran is. It shows that he is a level of talent that we've never seen before. But it goes beyond that. Coming into tonight's game, John Moran is the only player in the NBA who's top 10 in scoring and top 10 in assists per game. You want to talk about an impact. You want to talk about a guy who is playing at an all-star, all-NBA level. He's not on the... I wouldn't go so far as to say he's an MVP candidate. He's not making that two-way impact other players do. But if we're talking about John Morant saying at the first of the season that he is a top-five point guard, individual statistics validate so far he's playing at the level of a top-five point guard. Mm. Love to hear that. And no, I would not have guessed Rudy Gay. Uh, it's your question. I probably would have gone with something like Powell uh, just because, you. Yeah. I mean, he put up numbers, but... That is super interesting. Um, Rudy Gay is not not one that Grizzlies fans always have top of mind on these and these different records and things. But no, that's that's I agree. I mean, it's just unbelievable to see the way that John Morant is controlling the game already. I think he is a no brainer uh, max, if not super max, depending on you know his All NBA uh, selection in the next year or two. Um, but let's move now to Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, I think the story uh, really through 10 games is his volatility. Um, not that there aren't flashes. It's just the consistency that we're not seeing. And I think a lot of fans that might not necessarily be as in the weeds on advanced statistics, um, comparisons to other players throughout the league, what they see just based on the eye test is a guy who um, still is having trouble with fouls and uh, will get hot every once in a while, but is having a trouble making a consistent impact. What are your thoughts on Jaron thus far, and uh, and what do you see as his ultimate destiny? Maybe let's start with short-term, and then we can talk long-term in a second. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. It's volatility. And, and the thing about it is this, is that when it comes to Jaron, so many people, when they look at Jaron, you know, we, we talk so much about the uniqueness of his game, of being a three-point shooter at his size, that a lot of people's opinion of him you know, nothing against, you know, whatever level of fan you are, but I, I don't care if you're, you're a diehard fan like us or you're a casual fan, whatever level you consider yourself, your valuation of Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to be based on his shot. And if his shot's not there, then it's going to be harder to have a positive opinion. But the thing is this, is that, yes, consistency is something that, you know, I, I mentioned, others have mentioned as well. Consistency is something that is going to be a work in progress this season. It's just the type of player that he is. It's also the foul trouble as well. But you also have to look at it from the lens. How is his overall game maturing compared to the past? Now, the shooting is still streaky. He's going to be a streaky shooter early in his career. But I haven't looked at the numbers straight for myself, but it, it, we're not seeing as many instances where he's out of games due to fouls. We are seeing an improvement when it comes to his rebounds, which is sustainable from last year. Last year, Jaron had improvements in his rebounding rates, steal rates, block rates, and the ability to be able to be consistent on the defensive end. We have had multiple games this year. Last night, 
he was a defensive stopper. Against Nikola Jokic in that second Denver game, he was a defensive stopper. He's rebounding better. He's creating turnovers better. Being that flash guy who can disrupt in the post like DeAnthony Melton and others can do it on the perimeter. So his shot being consistent is what everybody's going to kind of look at first. But the underlying supporting elements of his game certainly have been consistent. But getting back to the point of volatility, the story with Jaron Jackson Jr. is this. Ten games into the season, you feel like Jaron is a difference maker one out of every four or five games. As we go each month into the season, well, the best way I could put it in simplistic terms, can each month we make that number smaller? Maybe by December, once every three games. He's a difference maker. Towards the All-Star break, once every two games, he's a difference maker. We're towards the end of the season, hopefully health is certainly on his side. We're now seeing that, yeah, he may not be playing at an All-Star level, but it's clear when teams come to play the Grizzlies, if they're going to be able to limit John Morant, the next thing on their list is limiting Jaron Jackson Jr. It being a work in progress and those flashes happening more frequently is going to be the story for success for Jaron this year. Yeah, and... And that's the thing is, you know, preaching patience uh, has been, I think, at the top of of everyone's list from the front office, top down, I mean, about Jaron. Because the hard part about it is you're seeing a guy who's his age and John Morant basically step into the league and essentially own this team. And so you're, you're having to – they're two different players, two different skill sets – and um, if Jaron, that's the thing is if if Jaron pans out, then you have something special. It's just a matter of if. And I think what what were your thoughts? I know this is this is uh, probably something you went through, you know, last month when it happened. What were your thoughts on his contract in regards to um, his level of play thus far, as well as projecting forward what he could be? What what were your thoughts when that was signed? I think it was the most logical outcome. I had predicted four years, 90, four years, 100 million um, as being the outcome. I know that if the Grizzlies would have waited this year, they could have potentially gotten more validation of what exactly he is. They could have potentially gotten an extra year. I get that. But when you're a small market like the Grizzlies, if others have pointed out, and I agree with, when you're a small market like the Grizzlies, you don't have the chance, you don't have as much room for error, error to customize the card that you're dealt to be a contender. And with Jared, the best outcome for this Grizzlies team is Jaron Jackson Jr. working out to be a top three or four part of a potential championship contender. Yes, he's had injuries. Yes, there's inconsistencies. All this different stuff. But there's also plenty of flashes and there also has been historical precedent in terms of his game. You extend that. You take that. You make it clear that you feel that fits what you're looking to do long-term, and you take advantage of the good development system that you have had here so far, Will. And so I was fine with it. I know it's a big risk, but the Grizzlies also did very well in getting it into being a declining structure to where it's going to be less of a contract when they're closer to contention, to where they can have more cap space to build towards getting another big move in place. But also they have the language in there to where if the injury concerns do pop up, they can change the structure on the contract. Maybe the latter years become non-guaranteed or less guaranteed You know, if the injury pops up again. They've also protected themselves, but Jaron is securing life-changing money for generations for his family. The big thing any player wants to do, he's going into a situation where if he cooks 
for the next four to five years. He gets another big contract when he's 26, 27 years old. And at the end of the day, both parties benefit from this potentially being a bargain if health works out and he continues to progress. So I was fine with it. I think it was a smart move to get it done right now because you ain't got the narrative of what could be yeah, and I wanted to get your thoughts kind of before I made my next point, which is, you know, a lot of times once a dollar value is actually put on these players, it tends to change the way we think. And essentially, I use Andrew Wiggins all the time as an example. Is Andrew Wiggins a max player? No, but do people miss the parts of his game that are positive ads just because of that dollar figure that they have in their minds that he's never, ever going to live up to necessarily? Whereas Jaron, you know, it's right in that zone where I could see him reaching it, you know. But the question is, I think long-term, is Jaron ultimately a number two on a championship team? And I noticed you mentioned, you know, you said three or four on a championship team. Are your thoughts that Jaron, best-case scenario, is that three? Or are you in the two or three zone still right now? Flashes of mm. both. And, and see, that's the thing that I've also said about John Morant. In my opinion, this Grizzlies team still does not have the talent on here that it needs to be a true championship contender. They are going to have to get a wing-type talent that is to the level of jaw or better, in my opinion, to truly be able to win a championship. You know, we've seen that alpha two-way wing be the main one on a lot of these championship teams in recent past. But with the LeBrons and the Kawhis and others eventually, you know, getting into the twilights of their career, even though we still have the Giannis's and the Luka Doncic's, you may be open to it being a more complete team aspect with the point guard being the best player. I go with the Grizzlies' path to contention, Will. I either think takes the route of a Utah Jazz where you just have a complete, unique team where you have just such good chemistry, uh, one through eight in your rotation that they absolutely are a contender because of how well they play together, or you go the Raptors' route where you get all that you need in place as a championship core goes together, you need that one over-the-top guy to add to it. Either one of those ways, I think that's where the Grizzlies go. So I think Jaw becomes that 1A, 1B with another talent the Grizzlies are going to have to eventually get. And then you hope that Jaron is kind of that supporting piece, that next guy up who, yeah, he may not be there, but one of the things that stands out to me is that you just hope at the right time a long stretch of that uber potential turns into production. I would call him a three right now going forward. I don't want to say with confidence he's a two, but could he surprise and get there? Sure. But I think that he could be a contributing member. I think it's going to be more as the third or fourth best player on a championship contender right now. So he could be the Pascal Siakam of the Toronto Raptors it, from 2019. 150% true. If uh, John Morant is... Uh, I think John Morant could be a bit better version of Kyle Lowry in his peak years, but if you can get him as the clear number two, get you someone to eventually be your number one, and you always see there potentially being stars who can make sense, then yes, Jaron stepping up unexpectedly and having a long stretch of just absolutely being a great two-way supporting cast member, I think that that long term may be the best bet for him on a true championship. Contender. Perfect. Well, um, the next thing I wanted to talk about too is the defense uh, of the Grizzlies so far. It's been... Uh, they, if you look right now, just in terms of the team defensive rating, they're in the bottom three of the league, I believe, after last night. Um, we've seen a lot of struggles there. There have been some theories thrown out, you know, both around, let's say, the starting lineup. Last year you had Dylan and Kyle. This year you have Bain and Melton. 
Um, you've also seen more um, more lineups that have featured younger guys or or just a deeper rotations that could hurt you. Um, what is your theory on on the defensive struggles thus far, and what do you see as the best way to to patch that together moving forward? It's just early season. Um, it, it, it's early season noise. Um, it is, uh, you know, the Grizzlies wanting to go with structure that just is not there. Um, and it's just also, I, I think, one, what it basically comes down to is this, is that the Grizzlies are running into a lot of shot variants early in the season. You have seen multiple occasions. I think the Heat have done it. I think to an extent Denver has done it. Washington did it. And now Minnesota did it as well teams against the Grizzlies have just come in and had their best shooting nights against Memphis. One of the reasons why, unfortunately, that's the case, we're leaving too many wide-open threes. There are too many instances where this Grizzlies team looks confused in terms of defensive rotations, and that results in the guy with the ball either not being covered or, in that confusion, him quickly getting to the guy who's not being covered, and it leads to open three. Dylan Brooks helps out with that. But the other thing that stands out, I think that will normalize in time. Because, you know, for instance, against Denver, we did a very good job of shooting and defending the three. But the other thing that I'll say is this, Will, is that the one thing that is concerning with Steven Adams being in the lineup, there's not a lot of paint presence there. Steven Adams, when we talk about him being a defensive upgrade, his goal was to be someone who, even though he was a traditional center, he could get away from the rim and be a bit more versatile, a bit more functional away from the rim in switchable situations than Jonas Valanciunas. But... The problem is, is that defenses are attacking that, getting into the lane, and the Grizzlies are not being any type of presence at the rim. They're last in the league, at least coming into the Minnesota game, in terms of in terms of allowing opponent shots at the rim. They they allow the most opponent uh, field goals made within five feet of the basket entering uh, that Minnesota game. But my point is this, is that it's just a layer of issues. It's they're not defending the three-wheel, which I think will normalize in time, but they're also, whether it be rotations, just in general team communication, help side defense not being there, the, people being out of position far too often. The positioning is not there right now for them to guard the paint, but it definitely made a difference last night. And one of the reasons why is because you saw more active rotations, more active help, more athletic players. You're just seeing that the Grizzlies perhaps may be, more, may be in a better position by playing their more athletic bigs than Steven Adams in a lot of situations. I'm not putting it all on Steven Adams. I don't want this to come across as a negative. I'm just saying that at this point in time, with how offenses are attacking the Grizzlies, right now Steven Adams is not being the asset that you had hoped. You're probably going to go ahead and have to go with more athletic bigs to give you more functionality and versatility to adapt what the offenses are throwing at you. Yeah, Dylan Brooks coming back is certainly not going to hurt you at the point of attack, especially. Um, you won't have to necessarily guard the other team's star by committee anymore. Um, you would hope that he'd be ready to step up. Um, the offensive questions will be there. Uh, we don't necessarily have to get into it. I'd like to see a few games of Dylan first before I make any um, any draw any conclusions about that or decide beforehand. But it'll be certainly be interesting. I'm excited to have him back. Um, Two guys that have stepped up in Dylan's absence are Desmond Bain and DeAnthony Melton, and I wanted to touch on on their performances uh, really briefly here. What have you seen from their step forward this season? What have you been impressed with? Uh, how do you think they've performed thus far? 
uh, sustainability. And the thing that I'm getting at is, is the progress of sustainability. For Dylan Brooks, or excuse me, for Desmond Bain, it's becoming a more resourceful three-point shooter. He was already coming into the season considered, one, in my opinion, one of the best catch-and-shoot young three-point options in the league. Now you're looking at a player who's becoming a more complete shooter who can also create his own shot, who can do things on his own as a three-level scorer. He's shown the mid-range, the feel for the mid-range early in the season, and his ability to shoot three has struggled over the past few games, and you see how impactful that is for this Grizzlies team. When Desmond Bain is shooting the three, this Grizzlies team is the best three-point shooting version of itself we've ever seen. When he's not, it becomes a bit more of a struggle, but his offensive resourcefulness has certainly stepped out. With DeAnthony Melton, you're going to have some games where he's going to struggle, but the ability to create his own shot, the 40% three-point shooting, is certainly an aspect of his game that is there, but the thing that makes DeAnthony Melton so exciting is the takeover ability on defense. He did it against Golden State to get us that win. He did it during the th early third quarter and at parts of that fourth quarter on Monday night to get us the win. So the takeover ability as a two-way player of DeAnthony uh, uh, De Melton in ways few can, but also the offensive resourcefulness of Desmond Bain and the fact that as a combination, they add the depth that they do to what you already have in Jaron as well as Dylan when he gets back and the improvement of Josh shooting the three, that's what makes them so exciting for Taylor Jenkins to utilize. Absolutely. That's been... That's been uh probably my favorite part of this season so far is oh, seeing yeah. the leap that they both have been taking in different ways. And I think when they're both hitting uh, from deep, it's going to be really, really tough to stop this Grizzlies offense because John Morant is going to be able to find them no matter what with the, the gravity that he has and he pulls um, from, from defenders. Um, the last kind of headline I wanted to get to is the bench had been struggling really early on, um, but we saw in, in the most recent uh, three or four games, just the way that if the bench steps up, again, it's really hard to stop this team. Tyus Jones uh, doing what he does. Uh, one of Brandon Clark or Xavier Tillman coming off the bench and popping. And then we even seen the rookie, I mean, have a couple games where, where his shot's falling, especially from that corner, and it really opens it up. And if they can sustain until their starters are back, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. What have you seen from the bench that you've been impressed with? everybody's playing their role well. And it starts with Kyle Anderson, in my opinion. Over the past week to 10 days, Kyle Anderson has really stepped up, Will, and has been, in my opinion, playing at the level of a six, of a six man. He's not to what he was in the first half of last year, but you're talking about a player who's averaging, you know, 13 points per 36 minutes, 13 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, or four and a half assists, shooting 40% from three. There's many different ways he can contribute when the ball's in his hand on offense. Plus, as we mentioned earlier, to me, he's the second most important cog to this defense as well. So him playing at a six-man-of-the-year uh, candidate level is what really stands out. But then everybody doing their roles. Tyus Jones, I believe now we're looking at a 34-to-2 assist-to-turnover ratio. He's shooting the ball better than he has since 19, the 19-20 the, uh, season. Uh, that steps up. He's playing his role as four general. Zaire Williams being a shooting surge source. Sorry for the alliteration there, but with his three-point shooting certainly there. And then, of course, you've got the different ways you could use Xavier Tillman, more as a structured two-way type asset who could pass the ball well. His perimeter defense is phenomenal. And then, of course, Brandon Clark, what he can do in the paint on both ends of the core and running it up. But the thing that stands out to me, and this is especially going to be true if DeAnthony Melton gets shifts back to that bench 
when Dylan Brooks is here. The one aspect of this, I would stack up the defensive potential of the Grizzlies reserve unit up against anybody's in the league. And the, the ability for this uh, Grizzlies bench unit to play two-way basketball. And then from there, you to mix and match different lineups between the starters and the bench players. That's what makes them so versatile. So that's why they've stood out. It's the fact that everybody's playing their role well. The offensive games are starting to come together for these players. But the overall defense that's make, that separates them from most benches, that's what really stands out to me, and we've seen that, seen that on more than one occasion on three out of the past four games. Absolutely. Well, let's look ahead, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of close up shop here. Let's look ahead at the next month of the schedule. Um, we have Charlotte coming into town. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, uh, they'll be playing that game uh, tonight. And then you got the Suns also at home, so you're kind of ending a three-game homestand there. You play your first game in New Orleans um, and then you come back home with a game against the Rockets and, and then on from there. Um, the, the way that this team has, has really sustained uh, a level of success through a, a, a very difficult schedule to start, um, what are you seeing from November? Uh, what are your, your thoughts on, on how this team is going to continue to su- sustain? Because right now they're actually – have a, a negative net rating and negative point differential, and yet you're looking at a at a, a winning record here at six and four through ten games. Yeah, and, and that negative ne- negative net rating, negative point differential, that matters, especially as you get a bigger sample size. But it's also key to remember that this Grizzlies team has a very good bounce back ability. That's how it's been. You know, they got killed by Portland very next night, unexpected win against Golden State. Got trounced by Miami, two back-to-back wins against uh, Denver. Got blown out by Washington, bounced back to get Minnesota. So I get those numbers say what they say, but I think as the Grizzlies kind of calm down that variance, kind of calm down that range of outcomes, you'll see those things there. 11 games left in November, seven of which are home, four of on the road, five against teams above 500. The Grizzlies basically are playing a pretty middle-of-the-road schedule versus having the toughest schedule in the NBA through their first nine games. I think the key to me, Will, is going to be going on a 4-2 and two start for the rest of November. Because if you can at least go 3-3 three and three or 4-2, and two, and especially if you can, you know, win tonight's game or to Wednesday night's game against Charlotte and then get that port, that uh, uh, Pelicans and um, Houston game, which are two big games because of division games, if you can go 4-2, and two, that or 3-3 three and three at least, that puts you at at least two games above 500 on the week of Thanksgiving. I think that that's critical for the Grizzlies. So kind of treading water, making it to where Dylan comes back, he gets back in the groove of things, you really start to click defensively with the hopes that your offense also get, makes its improvements. I think that the Grizzlies are probably looking at a 6-5, and five, but if they can go 7-4 and four, maybe throughout the rest of this um, um, schedule in November, which I definitely think is possible, that really sets them up well because that early December schedule is a tough one with two games against Dallas and one against Miami, three of their first four games. But yeah, I think that the Grizzlies could go 3-3 three and three or better over their next six games, especially taking the Pelicans-Houston game, that's really going to be a big boost for them. Did you make a prediction uh, for the Grizzlies record at the beginning of the season, what you thought it would be? Yeah, I made the prediction. I don't know if I said range-wise. I think I said 39. 39. To 43 wins. I questioned... Um, whether or not the Grizzlies were going to have the cohesiveness to start out. 
Um, they have. It's just been in a different way than we thought. Uh, but at this point in time, I would say that the Grizzlies probably are, are looking at, I would say probably 43 to 45 wins. I'll go with 43 right now, putting them four games above 500. Good enough, I think, to really be in that potential eighth or ninth spot um, in the West. Um, but, you know, the thing about it is this, is that if our defense, with Dylan coming back, if our defense could just at least improve to having a long stretch of being league average, we have the offense, especially from our bench, to be able to play well. It just comes down to the defense. Can the defense get better structured, especially if you customize based off matchups going forward in the front court and Dylan comes back and do what he can do, what he can do when he's healthy? Sean, this has been a pleasure. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners where they can find you, read your work, and, and listen to you? Yeah. And first off, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Look forward to, you know, hopefully this won't be the last time we could talk. Uh, you can find me at StatsSAC on Twitter. That's at, at S-T-A-T-S-S-A-C on Twitter. Um, if you do not like the Braves, if you do not like the Balls, if you do not like the Grizzlies, or you do not like the Titans, um, get over it. I'm just kidding. Um, at StatsSAC on Twitter, at Locked on Grizz is the podcast that I do um, on a daily basis. A lot of fun. I just, I really enjoy diving into all things Grizzlies and talking about it. It allows for my wife to get a reprieve for me talking to her about it. Uh, but you can find the show at Locked on Grizz, myself at StatsSAC, YouTube channel, Locked on Grizz is there as well. Um, and then also you can find the great content from everybody that's involved. Joe Molinax, Parker Fleming, Brandon Abraham, many others, myself over at Grizzly Bear Blues every single day. Content there as well. But words at Grizzly Bear Blues, um, audio over at Locked on Grizz, video in my smiling face, on YouTube. So. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, here's to another Grizz victory tonight against Charlotte, and here's to a great month of November. Thank you again, sir. Hey, been my pleasure. Have a good one, Will. Thanks again to Sean Coleman for joining the Grizz Den Pod. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe to the Grizz Den Pod. It really does help. Brantley, Ty, and I will be back before you know it. Until then, let's go, Grizz.